coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group. This is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the DNS podcast. Our guest today is registered dietitian nutritionist, Brett Bainey, here to talk with us about his recent publication in DNS Support Line entitled, Is There a Case for Supplemental Coenzyme Q10 for Post-COVID-19 Syndrome? Brett is an experienced clinical dietitian at the Veterans Healthcare System of the Ozarks in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where he works as an outpatient, inpatient, and food service informatics dietitian. Before coming to the VA, Brett worked eight years as an advanced practice dietitian at Winchester Medical Center in Virginia, where he was a member of the nutrition support and feeding tube placement teams. In addition, he has served in the Army Reserve as an officer dietitian since 2009 and mobilized to New York City at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic to provide nutrition care to COVID patients. He is a proponent of lifelong learning and successfully led a randomized controlled trial at Winchester Medical Center that investigated the effects of gastric versus postpyloric tube feeding on blood glucose control and insulin requirements in critically ill patients. He enjoys staying abreast with the latest in nutrition science and teaching what he learns to veterans in his healthy cooking classes at the VA. In his spare time, Brett enjoys spending time with his wife, parents, and standard poodle puppy. Thank you. Thank you, Christina, for inviting me. Uh, This is a great experience. I I appreciate it. So tell us more about your role at the VA and what you do to support our veterans. Yes. So I started at the VA almost two years ago as an outpatient dietitian, I primarily work in our weight management program called MOVE, but I also cover inpatient as needed and we'll be transitioning to food service informatics full-time in the near future. Interestingly, I also, um, obesity affects veterans at, higher, at a higher rate than the general population. With that said, um, I am also the lead dietitian for our Healthy Teaching Kitchen program which is a national program designed to teach veterans about food, nutrition, and how to prepare healthy, balanced meals. Being a cooking instructor is probably one of the most rewarding parts of my job. Uh, um, Teaching veterans about food and nutrition in a hands-on practical way is very rewarding. I was a cook in the Marines over 20 years ago and went to culinary school after. So working as a healthy cooking instructor finally allows me to put that training and education to good use supporting our veterans. So what was it like working in New York City during the pandemic? Well, it was a it was a very surreal experience. Many of the shops and restaurants had closed. There were few people in the streets. It had a ghost town feel in, in many ways in some parts of the city. We were located in the lower Manhattan area. To my understanding, this was the first time in our national history where the Department of Defense worked closely with FEMA, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and other federal and state 
agencies to support a nationwide effort to curb the spread of an infectious disease and build field hospitals across the country. The Army created more than a dozen of what were called urban augmentation medical task forces to reinforce impacted communities across the nation. I was a member of one of these task forces. Each of these task forces included 85 soldiers made up of physicians, nurses, dietitians, pharmacists, diet techs, respiratory therapists, and patient admin soldiers. With that said, I'm so grateful that I was able to, able to be part of that unique mission and serve the nation. When I arrived at the Javits Center, I was very surprised at how quickly our government had erected a fully functioning field hospital with 2,500 beds with a max, actually with an actually with a max capacity of 3,000 in an expo hall of a convention center. With that said, our mission in New York City was to take in from local hospitals, patients with mild COVID to help the hospitals make room for the sickest of the sickest. We had an ICU for patients who progressed to severe disease, but our goal was to stabilize the very sick and transfer them back out to a local hospital for optimal care. Regarding our nutrition operations, when I arrived on site at the Javits Center, our food service operations were limited to three cold meals a day, meaning our, our patients were served sandwiches, chips, milk, snack bars, fruit, and other foods like that could be stored in the refrigerator. Midway through the operation, we received support for two hot meals a day from our vendor, our food, our food vendor. We were able to provide the same diets typically offered in your average hospital, the regular diet, the cardiac diet, consistent carb, renal, and a low fiber diet. In addition, we also could provide the, th the three national dysphagia diets. We had 13 RDs from the Army, the U.S. Public Health Service, and the U New York Department of Health. In addition, we had several nutrition care specialists, specialists from the Army. Nutrition care specialists are dietitian extenders and are essential to running nutrition care operations. In combat and humanitarian options, they assist the RDs by cooking and preparing modified diets, performing nutrition screenings, conducting classes, and other duties. Because of my experience as a nutrition support dietitian, I prim primarily worked in the, in the ICU. And working inside the ICU was challenging in some ways. For one, everyone came from a different place with different ways of doing things. So learning to work together with new coworkers was essential. We had no electronic medical record system. So finding your information from paper charts took extra time and effort, not to mention there was a lot of waiting your turn to view paper charts. We had two enteral formulas, one being a high protein standard formula and the other being a diabetic formula. We also had Ensure, Glucerna and other snacks for patients as well. Fortunately, we did not have to use TPN, but we did have that capability just in case. The ICU RDs, attended morning and afternoon change of shift rounds and provided nutrition support recommendations then. With that said, my experience in New York City during the pandemic was a once in a lifetime experience that I'll never forget. Well, that must have been some transition too when you went back home, right? Like when that hospital 
well, I know I'm assuming the hospital, you know, was then decommissioned, but it must have been a pretty significant transition going back into, you know, kind of your usual routine. Yeah, so we were we, we were running a hospital at the Javits Center for approximately 30 days, maybe a little more. Um, and we had a total of a little over 1,000 patients. It might have been like 1,001 that came through our doors and left. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was very different going back home. You know, I you know my my fellow coworkers in Winchester drove by my house, you know, blew their horns and had you know <laughs> welcomed me back. It was, so it was a very very uh, good good um, good feeling. Um, but yeah, going back to a modern hospital with electronic medical records and all the modern medical amenities was was a big change for sure. Kind of onto our topic at hand, um, what is post-COVID syndrome? So post-COVID syndrome goes by many names. Some call it long COVID, others call it chronic COVID syndrome or simply chronic COVID. In a nutshell, it's the long-term effects of symptom or symptoms from a COVID infection, especially severe COVID-19 disease. But anyone who has been infected with COVID can experience post-COVID conditions. And many people who were not aware that they were infected can also have these symptoms as well. Um, the most common symptom is fatigue. Other symptoms can include difficulty breathing, chest pain, joint and muscle pain, and difficulty thinking or remembering. In my article, there is a complete list of symptoms as documented by the CDC. These symptoms can last days, months, or years. And according to the CDC, there is no test that determines if your condition is due to COVID-19. Post-COVID syndrome closely resembles chronic fatigue syndrome. And so chronic fatigue syndrome is also believed to be caused by viral infections, such as the Epstein-Barr virus. With that said, scientists are still trying to learn more about who experiences post-COVID syndrome and why. So how does coenzyme Q10 counteract or lessen the lasting effects of COVID? So CoQ10 is a ubiquitous molecule synthesized mainly by the mitochondria in the heart, kidneys, liver and skeletal tissue due to due to their high calorie needs. It is also obtained through the diet in small amounts, about three to five milligrams a day from consumption of meats, oils, and tree nuts. It also functions as an intermediate of the electron transport chain system to generate ATP. So without coenzyme Q10, we are not able to produce cellular energy. It also functions as an antioxidant in cellular membranes. So the, there's this idea that optimal CoQ10 levels could help protect the mitochondria against oxidative damage from COVID infection or with any viral infection. Uh, viral infections exacerbate mitochondrial dysfunction due to oxidative stress. Mitochondrial dysfunction happens naturally as part of the aging process, but a severe infection could speed up the process. 
When the mitochondria is dysfunctional, CoQ10 levels will likely be lower and inflammation and, and oxidation from the infection may make it less available for use. This could lead to a condition where the body has a high ATP demand, but the machinery and the fuel to make it to make, to make it is affected. And that could be why fatigue is the hallmark symptom of post-COVID syndrome. With that said, secondary CoQ10 deficiency has been observed in critically ill patients with sepsis. This is likely due to the increased demand for CoQ10 coupled with decreased production. However, supplementing CoQ10 to critically ill patients has not been shown to, to provide benefit yet. But in septic mice and rats, administering CoQ10 has been shown to improve survival and protect organs. So I think this is an interesting area for further research and to keep our eyes on. So what benefits can a person with post-COVID syndrome expect to see if they do start taking coenzyme Q10 supplements? Well, I would advise my patients to not necessarily expect anything since there really is not any conclusive evidence yet. There's still more research that needs, needs to be done. And I'm not aware of any trials investigating CoQ10 supplementation specifically for post-COVID syndrome. However, CoQ10 has been studied for several years as a treatment for those suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome. Since post-COVID syndrome is similar to chronic fatigue syndrome, persons with, persons with post-COVID syndrome may experience some benefit or improvement in fatigue by taking CoQ10. For example, a 2019 systematic review of 16 interventional studies of CoQ10 on fatigue, of those 16, 10 of the studies showed beneficial effects of CoQ10 supplementation on fatigue status in different populations. That research is cited in my article, if you want to read it at a later time. Additionally, in a recent Spanish trial involving 144 people with chronic fatigue syndrome, supplementing CoQ10 plus NADH. NADH is also known as nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, resulted in significant positive effects on the perception of fatigue, sleep quality, and health-related quality of life. Of note, in the Spanish study, the experimental group took 200 milligrams of CoQ10 and 20 milligrams of NADH a day for eight weeks. So are there any other patient types who may benefit from this type of supplementation or is more, more research needed before we can even make those statements? Well, as I mentioned earlier, post-COVID syndrome has a similar symptomatology as chronic fatigue syndrome. And the World Health Organization incorporates chronic fatigue syndrome in its classification of post-viral post syndrome. So if we group post-COVID syndrome under the umbrella of post-viral syndrome, any patient who survives a severe viral infection and experiences the hallmark symptoms of fatigue, shortness of breath, and cognitive dysfunction may possibly benefit from CoQ10 supplement, supplementation. 
as a as a dietitian, I would advise my patients that taking CoQ10 may, and I emphasize may improve symptoms, but not to expect anything. It remains uncertain what is the optimal dose. For example, the form of CoQ10 that pr will provide the best benefit and the duration of use. So those questions have not been answered fully yet. So we have a lot more to, to learn about CoQ10 as a potential treatment option for post-COVID syndrome. Additional, additionally, fatigue is very difficult to measure objectively. So the patient's perception of fatigue is what matters. And additionally, there are patients who may develop secondary CoQ10 deficiencies. Those taking statins, for example, long-term may experience lower than normal levels of CoQ10 due to impaired biosynthesis. And those with chronic inflammation may also experience lower levels of CoQ10 due to increased oxidative stress. The normal range for blood CoQ10 levels varies between labs, but it is usually between 0.4 to 1.9 micrograms per liter. And there is no established tolerable upper intake level for CoQ10, but there is an observed safety level of 1200 milligrams a day. Well, one last question before we wrap up the podcast. Are there any other micronutrients or antioxidants that work similar to or in conjunction with coenzyme Q10? Yes. So in the Spanish study I mentioned earlier that the researchers coupled CoQ10 with NADH. NADH works along with CoQ10 and functions as a shuttle for electrons in the electron transport chain. And as we know, nicotinamide is a form of vitamin B3, also known as niacin. And I would think that most antioxidants, especially the fat-soluble ones like vitamin E, may be helpful in protecting the mitochondria from oxidative damage. Very good. Well, thank you for all of this wonderful information. Um, with that, we will go ahead and conclude today's podcast. Thank you again so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us today. Thank you, Christina. I appreciate it. And listeners, be sure to check out Brett's article in the December 2022 edition of DNS Support Line, available at no cost to our DNS members at our website, dnsdpg.org. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.